Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate podcast. Each week, Sean McCoy and Eric Johnson share real-world case studies of businesses in oil and gas that are successfully navigating the complex environmental, social, and governance landscape. These are the stories that are driving the energy evolution. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Welcome to the Oil and Gas Elevate Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCoy. Joined as always by my co-host, Eric Johnson. Eric, good to see you, buddy. Good to see you. How are you, man? I'm living the dream as always, man. Awesome. This is Yeah, we're, we're getting ready to go down another path of the episode. The second segment, the case study segment, that's what one of our favorites that we've done in a while is going to be about Halliburton Labs with Scott Gale, their executive director. Can't wait to hear that, uh, for everybody to hear that part of it. And the insights coming from Paul Holland from Mach 49 from a VC perspective. So that's coming up on our second and third segment. But before we get to there, as we always do in the first part, we go through our talking points. And as we always talk about, Eric, I, like you, we, we're always out there listening. We're always out there reading about certain things and come across and kind of find our inspiration for this part of the podcast through that. And there's a, there's a show, a podcast called The Energy Detox with Joe Sinnott. And he was, it was one of the recent episodes, and it's called Keep It Sustainable Stupid. And we always hear, you know, a lot of us are familiar with the you know, Keep It Simple Stupid but that one kind of caught my eye and then listening to it. And it's an excellent episode about just kind of diving into that word. And we, you and I have talked a lot about this, how, you know, what does sustainability mean? There's so many different definitions and things of that nature. And so when you hear the word sustainability, Eric, what do you think about? Well, first, let me just say, I think Joe is one of those amazing voices out there. You and I have talked about this a lot. There's dozens of great voices inside the energy industry, whether it's podcasts, whether it's written content or whatever. And it's exciting to just get to see that content and maybe get to elevate it and, and push it out a little bit more. So I'm, I'm excited Joe's going to join us today. But let me also tell you what I think about sustainability. When I think about it, and you're right, there's dozens of definitions and permutations of this concept. But when I think about it, in all honesty, I think about Cole, Luke, and Molly, my three kids. Hmm. So how do I and my current use of energy and my current use of the environment and how I live my life, how can I do that in such a way that Cole, Luke, and Molly and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren, how do they continue to enjoy this amazing planet, this amazing creation? And how are we, as the adults in the room right now, how do we use it in a responsible way to ensure that the next generations get to use it? That is how I think about when I think about sustainability. Mm. Yeah, which is a big ass. I think that's a big part of so many people's you know passion, no matter what side they're on, right? right. There's... There's so much of that that goes on, I think, around this topic and around, you know, ESG and what we've been talking about all the time is, you know, we like to look at the other side, if you will, and think that there are people that are just crazy. But no matter what their kind of perspective is, at the end of the day, I think a lot of them are kind of, there's that concern, right? There's that concern right. of what is it going to be like for the next generation and that that level of empathy. So, so yeah, so, we, so we're all part of that. So as, as Eric mentioned, uh, we try to go to straight to the source if we get a chance. You know, I, I foreshadowed that a little yes, bit. I no, it's beautiful. I love the foreshadowing. It makes sense. And because like, like we try to do, we went straight to it. Joe's been very gracious to come out today. And so before we introduce him, I'll tell you a little bit about him. And so he is an executive coach, chemical engineer, and 15-year energy industry veteran. He helps oil and gas leaders regain and sustain success in the face of today's unrelenting challenges. And as we mentioned, he's the host of the Energy Detox podcast, but he's also a founder of Witting Partners, which he uses as a medium to do those things. He provides practical and proven tools to identify and flush away the hidden and often toxic barriers to peak performance. And so Joe's unique blend of industry insight, technical know-how, and professional coaching leverages his experience as an offshore field engineer with Schlumberger, 
So now there's two of us on the line. There's always at least one of us out there from Schlumberger, <laughs> it seems like, followed by a number of functionality diverse leadership roles for EQT Corporation as it evolved into America's largest producer of natural gas. So he's also a twin dad. He's a New Jersey native and a 2005 graduate of the University of Notre Dame. And he currently resides in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with his wife, Becky, and their four children. And so with that intro, Joe, thanks for putting out the podcast and the episode and for coming on the show today. Great. Thank you, guys. My pleasure. Happy to be here. So, Joe, it's a first question. Like when, you know, we, sustainability is such a broad topic, as we talked about. And there's so many different directions we go to. When you, when you hear it, like I asked Eric, where's your brain and where's your heart and mind go today in terms of what that subject means? Sure. Well, again, as you guys said, there's no shortage of definitions. So I usually start with a relatively broad one, honestly. And when I think of sustainability, I tend to first think of it being when you can maintain some you know, reasonably high, statistically high certainty that you'll be able to continually move towards some ultimate objective. And I try to keep it at that high level first for a couple of reasons. One, because I think you know, the emphasis on that ultimate goal, that ultimate objective is something that is often missed by definitions of sustainability that might you know, oversimplify things or, or focus on one narrow piece of, again, that ultimate objective that you're, you're looking at, you know, similar to what Eric said, you know, whether it's your family or whatever, there's usually something that's there. And, you know, many of the sustainability conversations surround, you know, some intermediate step to get there. The other reason I like that definition is because, again, it, I like to introduce statistics. You know, sustainability is when you're reasonably certain that you're going to be able to continue on that path, but there's no guarantee. And, you know, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, nobody has sustainability down. We don't have a certain path. So, again, I like to really emphasize that, you know what, we don't have all the answers. And I think admitting that and understanding that is actually a path towards more sustainable solutions. So, you know, I, I like that piece of that definition. And then the final reason that I like to stick with somewhat of a, a general definition, at least to start, is that it is applicable whether you're talking about you know, global entities and their sustainability objectives or platforms or companies and their sustainability, the money that they're spending on that, but it's also applicable to you and me as individuals because clearly we're seeking you know, some level of personal sustainability. So you know, along with an answer, but ultimately it's that general definition that then allows us to drive a conversation about some of the more, you know, specific elements of sustainability. So I think one of the things, there's all this ESG hysteria, right? It, it's this raging fire that seems to be taking over everything in some ways driven by COVID and in our particular industry in energy, it's, it's kind of hooked up arms with the, the e-bucket and is, is sprinting forward on us. But when we think about executing on sustainability, you know, what do you think, you talked a little bit about this general definition and making sure we understand it correctly. What, what do you think the biggest hurdle is in front of us right now, just from a, from a corporate standpoint on, on starting to achieve some of these sustainability objectives, however vague or ill-defined they might be? I think it's, it's seeing sustainability or these ESG initiatives, or certainly one letter, as you point out, within the ESG as ends in and of themselves. I think that's the danger. And it goes back to, again, the statistical conversation, you know, feeling like we've got a solution, it's good enough, we're going to put us on that path and then losing sight of that ultimate objective. Because once you do that, you know, the people that are driving this forward, especially within an organization, you know, they're going to start wondering, hey, you know, what's in it for me? Not just selfishly, but from a purpose standpoint is, you know, hey, this all sounds great. And I understand that this is all for my children and my grandchildren, again, as you said at the beginning, Eric, 
But at the end of the day, practically speaking, am I going to be able to sustain a multi-decade career? Am I going to be able to sustain the lifestyle and the freedoms that I've enjoyed to this point? And I think it's dangerous if companies get too focused on ESG and these higher level and laudable goals, if you will, and lose sight that you know people want personal sustainability, individual sustainability. And, and I think that's the danger of some of these initiatives and some of these approaches right now. Glenn, Sean, that's something you and I were talking about earlier today before launch, is this idea of the ESG objectives are laudable, as you said, and the things that we need to be focused on. And I do think in many respects, they translate to resiliency and they translate to bottom line. But if we abandon profitability, you know, an unprofitable company, a bankrupt company cannot be a steward for anything anymore. It can't be an advocate. It can't be, it can't engage in philanthropy. It can't focus on these ESG things. And so, and, and so that's something that has resonated with us to be sustainable is not only the environment and these other issues, but Hey, we need a business model that actually works so that we can continue to employ people, that we can continue to be participants in our community and so forth. And I think, I think that gets lost all the time people not realizing that that connection is critically important to you know achieving success on this front. Correct. And I think profitability just like you know going net zero and reducing emissions, you know, those are all necessary pieces, but again, none of them are ends in and of themselves. The goal of carbon reduction and minimizing our footprint isn't just to reduce climate change and to you know minimize the increasing temperature the goal should be to have it be a more you know, habitable planet for people. And you can get there in lots of different ways. Similarly, a company can you know, continue to have success for many, many decades, but it's not going to get there unless it's profitable. So again, all of those things are right in line with, with the importance of profitability, as you said, but none of those alone are, are going to get you there. And companies need to recognize that. And again, work their way all the way backwards to the individuals who are going to actually drive things forward for, for the next you know, several years and, and decades. So from an individual standpoint, the question I want to ask you is when did you, with your career, like you were started out, like I'm sure this wasn't on the forefront of your brain from day one, or maybe it was, but did you have a moment or was there something that you experienced relative to this subject that kind of made you help you further define and understand what sustainability means and what it doesn't mean or what it could mean? I think the, you know, using the word sustainability certainly didn't come into play until the tail end of my time at EQT last year when it was clear that, you know, I had a choice. I could continue trying to do the, you know, the, the sim, you know, similar roles to what I had done for the prior 15 years, or I can think about what's going to allow me to go for several more decades and not just make a difference and not just make money, but, you know, feel some level of security. Again, no guarantee, as I said before, but some level of security. So personally, that's where sustainability came into play. And then once that popped into my head, you start looking back, you know, especially on the leadership roles I had and, you know, just being able to parrot the company line was never sustainable. You know, that wasn't enough of an objective for people. It was when, you know, you really put them in a position where they could grow and develop and, you know, put themselves in a position where they have a more sustainable career, no matter what happens in this crazy industry. You know, that's when the short-term results got better because, Again, people weren't worried. They felt like they were in a more sustainable state, no matter how crazy and dire and challenging you know things were. So again, it was sparked by you know the end of one phase of my career, but you know moving in this direction, I was able to build on the foundation of all the different leadership you know challenges I had that that surrounded people who again at times felt like they were not in a sustainable position, even if they were being promoted and you know had accolades and bonuses and everything else. You know, people are smart, and and at some point they realize that that's just not 
enough. Would love to get your thought. I spent a lot of time with my public company clients talking about this issue and would love to get your thoughts from as an executive coach and dealing with C-suite and dealing with senior executives and thinking about what you said earlier, purpose. You know, what, what's my purpose? What's motivating me? How, how am I individually sustainable in this role? But would love to get your thoughts on compensation, on incentive compensation and, and where do you think that's headed or what do you think it should look like? How, how do we, you know, historically we've tied you know, compensation to various key performance indicators, and they've almost always come out of, you know, the income statement of the balance sheet. But what are we going to do on a go-forward basis that addresses ESG, but at the same time doesn't monopolize, if, I don't know if that's the right word or not, but doesn't completely misdirect where we should be looking. Curious as to your thoughts on compensation, incentivizing, maybe incentivizing the behaviors we want to see from executive teams. I think that's a great question. And I think part of the answer is that ultimate long-term objective, because, you know, it's easy to look at executive compensation and say, well, you know, those are big numbers, but of course the reality is many of those executives, especially going forward, they're not in those roles for that long. So, you know, they have risk and just like, again, the definition I like to go back to, you know, they want the, the highest probability possible that they're going to be able to sustain the, you know, certainly the standard of living they've enjoyed, but the success they've enjoyed for many, many years. So I think, you know, those, those short-term you know, high dollar amount structured compensations, I think you're going to see those phase out and maybe dangle the carrot for people that set themselves up for, you know, much longer term, you know, incentives. Now, again, the realities of consolidation might make that more challenging, but I think, you know, that's where you need to go. I mean, you have executives, you have people that they get it. They don't just want purpose. I mean, that's important, but they want long-term sustainable purpose. And, you know, dangling these short-term incentive things that might only be good for two years and then, you know, they're stuck climbing back, you know, it's not going to work. So I certainly don't have a solution, but I think the same thing that companies need to do in terms of working backwards from some ultimate objective comes into play with these executives. You got to think about what the ultimate goal of your company is and work backwards and figure out, okay, well, how do you get these executives to maybe be on board for longer and not, you know, have an opportunity to run away, you know, after two or three years with, you know, with their golden parachutes. So Again, it's a challenge for sure. I don't have a, a magic answer, but I, I'll tell you that, you know, the people that I work with, you know, they get it. They, they want some long-term sustainability and, you know, they're willing to make some short-term sacrifices for it. You know, whether their accountants will let them admit that or not. <laughs> it makes me think of all of us have been around the industry a while. And then some of, you know, some of us have grown up in the industry. And so we have seen anything but sustainability. Probably if you're going to be, if you're looking at an overarching history of, especially econ this basic economics, it seems like. You're either a king, a queen, or you're a beggar. We've seen, you know, I can remember in the 80s in Houston, you know, entire blocks being foreclosed on. And I remember watching my parents' cars get repossessed and stuff like that. Not, But it's because it's a real thing. And that and the reason I bring that up isn't for any kind of sympathy or anything like that. It's more of and having been in the industry myself, part of layoffs on all sides of it and things of that nature, that our industry, if we're going to kind of do a little introspection, has a history of being unsustainable, but being this kind of this carrot that when it is time to get into it, it's kind of worth it. It makes up for some of those lost, that some of that lost time and some of that, some of that, you know, variability. And not that you can eliminate that completely, but in terms of maturing as an industry and really making all that sustainable as much as possible, what would you say to somebody out there who may feel kind of with those experiences, a little bit of fatigue, kind of like, okay, here we go again. This is just the same stuff in a different, wrapped up in a different way. Is there a real opportunity, whether it's compensation or just the basic premise of operations and stuff like that, of going forward and truly kind of maturing in that way and becoming more of a sustainable industry. 
I think there is. And I think it is in and of itself a challenge. I think, you know, that maturation, that desire for sustainability, that is a challenge. And we as an industry for 160 years have embraced those challenges. So I think the more we can frame it though, and identify it and not just have it be this, this underlying thing, you know, all those things that you just spoke of are real and people see those, but you know, let's call it for what it is. And it's been this, you know, this churn, this, this agita, this, you know, this disruption, you know, from a personal standpoint, if not familial standpoint for a lot of people, let's call it out and find some innovative way to deal with it. Again, there's no magical answer, but you need to ask the questions first because there is an answer. You know, there, there's been an answer to all the challenges that we've faced as an industry, and we're going to continue finding challenges. Most of those are technical, but the personnel challenge and that feeling of maybe not wanting to find yourself in, in the positions that you described for, again, the next couple of decades, call it out and we will find a solution. So again, I don't have an answer, but I do have the questions. And the more people that ask them, the more likely it is that we're going to find ourselves on a sustainable path as an industry. So and I feel pretty strongly about that too, because I've, I've seen it at a small scale. It's just a matter of, again, elevating it, if you will, to more people, more ears, and certainly the people that have the, you know, the ability to make the decisions to address that very real challenge. So in that in executive coaching role that you're doing now, when you talk to executives about ESG, is there a consistent theme in their frustrations or places where they seem like they're banging their head against the wall more than, than anything else or anything else you're seeing from that kind of coaching and, and trying to mentor people you know, down this path? I think, well, the good thing is that it's a given, right? I mean, I don't, to a T, everybody knows that it's non-negotiable. I think the frustration that people are seeing right now is that it doesn't seem to matter, at least outside of the industry. And it's sort of a circular thing when that happens, because then within the industry, you have your people, again, that are critical to driving things forward. And if they don't think it matters and they don't think that, you know, no matter what the energy industry does is going to be good enough, then that could be demoralizing. So, you know, there's no easy solution. They understand they have to do it. Again, they understand it's laudable, as we've said a couple of times now, but it's the fact that it just doesn't seem good enough outside of the industry. And that's, you know, that's the challenge that I think a lot of people are facing right now. Yeah. I think when you bang your head against the wall enough and, and acknowledge it's, it's a hurdle you need to jump and you're doing your best to do something about it. And whether it's the investor class or whether it's, you know, the media or whatever else, and you don't get recognition or at least some acknowledgement that kind of, you know, the pat on the back to keep yourself going. And in all honesty, that's one of the reasons Sean and I do this podcast, right? Is to find those success stories in the ESG universe that aren't getting told and to try to tell them. So definitely, I was actually on the phone yesterday with a large OFS company talking about, and it was with a member of the executive team talking about their frustrations and kind of getting beat on the head from the board and beat on the head from investors and beat on the head from, you know, all these different angles. And at the same time saying, hey, we're doing so much on the ESG front, but nobody cares. Hmm. Yeah. yeah and I think, you know, along those lines, Eric, what I've seen work, especially up here in Appalachia, is, you know, there are leaders who are willing to go out there publicly and really, you know, if not courageously, you know, put themselves out there, you know, in the media and really stomp their feet, say what we're doing and, you know, maybe to a certain extent, counter the narratives that are out there. And I think, you know, it's still a question of whether that's going to have the long-term impacts that we would hope it would have. But short term, their employees are seeing it, their people are seeing it. So even if it, even if the media is not really picking it up or caring, you know, they're at least seeing that there are leaders out there who are fighting for 
one, the truth, and two, the sustainability of an industry that's done you know, tremendous good. So again, that's one possible solution for at least the internal strife and headbanging, if you will, that some leaders are facing. But again, it's not going to solve all of the problems overnight for sure. Well, Joe, it always goes by too quick. I appreciate it. And I think anybody else out there, I would encourage you to go listen to, the, to his podcast and all the episodes out there. Definitely talks about this subject and other things around this area. And just speaking of sustainability, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate it. It's, a, it's great to have your voice out there. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate Thank it. You guys. All right. With that, stay tuned. We're heading to our case study and we'll be back after the break. HPE powers the intelligent edge to help oil and gas industry leaders solve sustainability and IT efficiency needs. Their circular economy principles make each product more energy and material efficient, lowering product power consumption and eliminating waste from the start. In doing so, they can help you reduce your CapEx and OpEx expenses and meet sustainability goals. Very cool, Sean. If you want to find out more, go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes to find out more information and download HPE's white paper all about it. Welcome to the case study segment of the podcast where we tell the story of a real tangible effort by a business in oil and gas to address ESG issues and how it's making an impact on the ongoing energy evolution. As always, I'm joined by my co-host Eric Johnson and today we're talking to Scott Gale of Halliburton Labs. Scott is originally from the Pacific Northwest he has a bachelor's of science in chemical engineering from Brigham Young University and graduated from the Jones Graduate School of Business at Rice University, where he received his MBA. His 10-year career in oil and gas has been emphasized by an entrepreneurial spirit with a heavy emphasis on innovation, which led to his current role as executive director of Halliburton Labs, which is the focus of this case study. We're going to find out by talking to him a little bit about the genesis, the creation story, if you will, surrounding this unique company. And so on behalf of Eric and I, Scott, welcome to the show. Sean, Eric, great to be here. Appreciate it. You're welcome. All right, so where we start is with the what we call the change. And so what industry gaps, market problems, opportunities and such existed prior to Halliburton Labs being created? Sure. I mean, the roots of our effort go back almost two years now as we were kind of rethinking how we engage with early stage companies just from an innovation standpoint, just kind of recognizing that not everything can be invented at Halliburton. And so trying to tap into that kind of innovation and entrepreneurial spirit. And then additionally, there was a lot of effort actually researching innovation more broadly, how that's happened at other corporations in the past. We looked at companies like Bell Labs, Kodak, and looked into that history to try and understand what were sort of the components and aspects of that innovation culture that mattered. And so as we were doing that diligence and looking into that, what we found is that out in the startup community more broadly around energy and particularly around hardware-based companies, I like to term it tangible tech, things like hardware, like material science, chemistry, there was really a big resource gap that was out there. And so all of those kinds of things that we identified played into kind of the form and structure and mission of Halliburton Labs. Excellent. And so this is what we call our road section. So obviously you recognize the issue, you see what it's about. So as the company begins to go into those steps, you're going to come up to issues. Can you give us one issue that you expected to face and one issue you did not? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we certainly expected as kind of any big corporation, you know, Halliburton uh, has been around for a long time, that engagement with the startup community there's sort of a set of expectations in that relationship. And Halliburton Labs 
was going to be different in terms of how we engage with that group. So we expected there to be kind of a starting point of maybe cynicism or maybe not really appreciating or understanding what we were bringing. And so I, I think that aspect of it has played out, but I think we get over that relatively quickly as we talk to these early stage companies and kind of demonstrate what we're doing. I think one of the unexpected pieces that sort of came up was sort of the expectation that Halliburton Labs would be kind of this unique backdoor into Halliburton. And so it's something that's important to kind of understand and that we communicate is that Halliburton Labs is not replacing startup engagement across the entire company. We're really focused on things that are outside of what Halliburton's run rate business is working on. So if you've got a cool new drilling technology, that's awesome. But don't come talk to Halliburton Labs about it. We'll get you plugged into to the right part of the organization. Right. Understood. All right. So this next part is what we call the harvest. So you've done this. You've recognized the gap. You've gone through these issues and others. And so in turn of that, Halliburton Labs was created. So tell us kind of what kind of the company, what was formed in terms of the company standpoint and what is the actual mission of Halliburton Labs? Sure. In terms of structure, it's pretty simple. We're a standalone C-Corp. We're a for-profit entity and we're a wholly owned subsidiary of Halliburton. And so that, I think, in terms of structure is important. That structure reports directly to the CEO of Halliburton. And so we are somewhat distant from the run rate business in terms of how we manage our day-to-day, but we work with them very closely. And it's a really important aspect of how we engage with the broader Halliburton in terms of what we deliver as Halliburton Labs. So a big part of what we're bringing is curated mentorship and other engagements with key personnel inside of Halliburton. So we have to maintain that bridge. That's really important. Our mission is to advance cleaner, affordable energy. And so that is something that's rooted in a clear demand trend around just even more broadly. It's a demand trend for whether that's driven by energy poverty, whether that's climate change, there is a need for cleaner, affordable energy that's driving quality of life for humans on this planet. And so that's what we're working towards. Excellent. And so the last one that we look at from a standpoint of stages is what's the application? So this is in regards to the launch was this year, 2020, about mid-year. So what has it been like since you've done that? I mean, it's been really fantastic so far. I mean, I think despite some of the obvious hurdles of you know COVID-19 going on, the need to have kind of a physical space that's driven us to look at kind of an online community that will be soft launching here later in 2020. And so we've just rethought what that environment really looks like and what that means and how we bring all of the important components together, including the entrepreneur, investors, academics, members of the Halliburton family more broadly. And so all of that, I think, is really important. The reception has been really strong. I think the fact that Halliburton is willing to put in, for lack of a better term, sort of an industrial wrapper around an early stage company is really important and interesting and fascinating for early stage companies. And so the reception has been, I think, really positive. I bet. The last question we ask before we start the conversation more in a broad sense is around, you know, we look at the ESG aspect and how does this apply? It seems very easy that you could argue all three elements are addressed by the creation of Halliburton Labs. So I'd like to come back to the social governance later, but I wanted to start with the environmental side and environmental impact, specifically around the words like clean and green. You know, we hear that quite a bit. We've heard it from before as far as that goes. And so give us a kind of a little bit of an idea of how did y'all determine what green was and then how does, how does Halliburton Labs impact that specifically? Sure. I mean, the definition of green, I think, is really something that is evolving. And I think it's really important, at least in my mind, and I think something that Halliburton really brings to the conversation is 
you have to look at it from a total cost of ownership perspective. It's pretty easy to sort of draw boundary conditions around certain aspects of whether it's a, you know, a battery operated vehicle, whether that is some type of new renewable fuel source like solar or wind. If you draw the boundary conditions around that, the, the environmental impacts are, it's a bit of a shell game if you're not careful. And so for us, we really are focused on cleaner, affordable energy in the sense that directionally it's got to get cleaner. We've got to be more cognizant about what the carbon footprint is, but let's have a real honest discussion about all of the different components that it's going to take to be able to make that happen. And so I think we've got a pretty pragmatic view as we look ahead to sort of the future mosaic of energy and that that mosaic has to be made up of a lot of different sources. It's going to require lots of upgrades to our existing electrical grid. It's going to require rethinking how we manage things behind the meter, in front of the meter, transportation, all of these different issues I think are really important and making sure that we're rooted in good engineering principles. There's a lot of things that are out there that really just break the laws of thermodynamics. And so we've got to be really clear about what we're solving for. And so that's a mentality that we bring into the types of companies that we're looking at, the things that they're solving for. Are, are we clear that it's really having that kind of impact or is it just sort of pushing the accountability of carbon impact to some other pocket of industry? Scott, I want to go back to something you mentioned at the beginning. And I think you used the term resource gap. And I want to get your thoughts on the hole y'all think that Halliburton Labs that you think you're filling when we talk about tangible tech and we talk about startups and to have for somebody to come along to Halliburton Labs and have a multi-billion dollar business with amazing facilities, amazing scale, purchasing power that can put you into a lab and allow you to accelerate what you're trying to accomplish. I'm going to talk a little bit about that because I feel like that's maybe one of the biggest benefits you, you bring to the table is, hey, little startup with no scale, no power, no ability to get anything done come partner with us and let us help you accelerate your process. Yeah, I think it's really important. I think the environment that we're talking about building recognizes that particularly for hardware-based companies to get kind of up that scale journey, if you will, you need access to lab facilities, you need manufacturing skill set and capability. And a lot of times you get stuck in this kind of technological valley of death or commercial valley of death while you're trying to fundraise for your own lab facilities or to get a contract manufacturer in place, or you're trying to do all these different things and it's distracting from actually running the business. It's so really hard for a founder to raise money and go generate sales. And so a big part of what Halliburton can bring is we have world-class facilities, both at the lab from a manufacturing perspective, we have a business that's operating at scale, people that are thinking about lots of different things from HR to managing operations in a country to you know, technical mentorship across all of these different areas. And so what we found is that allows an early stage company to focus on what's really important in their particular stage is to advance their technology and not have to worry about sort of building up the overhead and raising a bridge round to be able to go put that in place. And so we really are targeting those kinds of companies that are right on that cusp. They're not going from zero to one, but they're going from one to 10, one to a hundred. It's not just an idea on the back of a napkin, but they've got something kind of ready to go. And instead of going out and raising $8 million to go build a lab, come use ours for a year, demonstrate that, get to first revenue. And 
that I think is an important aspect of sort of providing that wrapper around the company. One thing I think that I think it's unfortunate is I don't think people recognize the fastest way for us to get green is a partnership with old oil and gas and new tech. The scale and the power that we have, the knowledge that we have. You think about companies that know how to do things offshore. Well, guess what they what guess what they would be really good at? They'd also be really good at putting wind farms offshore. Right. I mean, so there's there's so many ways to cross pollinate some of this stuff. And I think you had mentioned cynicism earlier. There's you know, is there that cynicism out there? Like, what is Halliburton really trying to accomplish here? And I just love to hear the story of like, no, we're, we're here to partner with you. And you even mentioned earlier that some of this stuff may not even be part of our run rate business, right? But we're here to help. Just more thoughts about more thoughts from you on the, the partnership and cynicism and, and kind of the struggles maybe to convince people, no, Halliburton Labs, we're, we're really good people. No, for sure. And I think it's a really important observation that, you know, think about sort of the startup community more broadly. There's a lot of comments about sort of enabling the creative class. And what that means in terms of seeding a vibrant startup community and engineering disciplines absolutely fall into that creative class. And in that sense, particularly Houston, for example, is already seeded with hundreds of thousands of individuals that are bringing that capability and competency. And I think there is now a recognition after sort of the failures of kind of term it clean tech 1.0 that kind of started in the early 2000s and where that's come along you know, roughly $25 billion of venture capital was invested during that time frame, and leading up into 2009, 2010, half of that disappeared. And I think a big part of it was, is maybe a lack of appreciation for what I like to term the weight of incumbency and that you're not just going to replace the grid overnight. It's the planet's largest machine. <laughs> There's a lot of different components that make up the grid today and what that looks like. And so it's going to be a long game. There's a lot of things that are going to have to take place. And I think there's a recognition now between whether you want to call it kind of incumbent energy or whatever it might be. And, you know, I don't really actually like the term energy transition. I think it's more of like an energy refresh because I think all of these components are going to play an important part. You just have to rethink how that system works and how it comes together and I don't think it's an us versus them kind of thing. I don't think it can be. So quick side question. I really love the fact that you included Halliburton in the name for Halliburton Labs. Was there ever any consideration for giving it some sort of other cool ultra green kind of name instead of using Halliburton? I mean, in short, yes. We looked at a number of different names. We kind of thought, should we maybe kind of try and hide the fact that it's Halliburton? Would that make sense? And it was just like, no. I mean, at the end of the day, Halliburton is bringing a lot of credibility, a lot of experience, a lot of scar tissue that I like to joke about. And that's valuable. That means something. And so ultimately we landed on Halliburton Labs because we're out in the open with it. I mean, we're not trying to hide anything. Well, and I think that's important. I mean, you guys got cool t-shirts, obviously. It'd be great if we could get a cool t-shirt. We'll get you guys some <laughs> on your way out. Absolutely. But I do think it's important that the name stayed. You hit it. I think the first is probably the first point you made is probably the right one, right? It's credibility. Like the ability to say, hey, no, no, no. This is not some random cool tech name. This, no, this is Halliburton is standing behind this startup. We're here to help them take that next step. We're going to let them stand on our shoulders and see what they can do. And so I think that's important. One thing, one thing I want to follow up on, and we talked about this a little bit, you know, in the cynicism and the partnership, and we talk about all that lost capital. How is the VC world, you know, who are funding these startups, but coming in and using your 
facilities and labs and other, how are they, what's that reception like between the VC world and you guys? Do they see a real partnership or is there some struggle there or is there buy-in? I would say there's a lot of buy-in. There's a recognition that participation in Halliburton Labs de-risks an early stage company. It de-risks their investment ultimately is the way that they look at it. And so while there is that sort of initial trying to understand what exactly is going on here, we have brought in a number of VCs to come check out what we're doing and tour them around and say, this is what we're working on. This is what we have in mind. This is what the relationship looks like. And I think an, an important aspect of kind of what Halliburton Labs is doing is we recognize that that investability in future rounds, you know, we're targeting kind of that seed to series A. There's a lot of institutional funding that these participants are going to have to get their hands on as time wears on. And so we really want sort of a low friction entry as a participant. So there's, there's no rofers, there's no board seats, there's no IP entanglements. So whatever a participant invents while they're with us belongs to them hundred percent. And so that message really resonates with the VC community because they're saying, okay, this really is specific to the company. It's an environment where this participant can be successful and we ultimately want them to go secure funding. It becomes really important. So we talked a little bit earlier about governance and we were talking about sometimes, well, well, it's pride, you know, there's a lot of pride in having the name Halliburton on there. So it kind of help us understand how the relation between Halliburton and Halliburton Labs is established and is ongoing. And how does that relate to a potential, you know, somebody who sees this as an opportunity and goes, oh, great, you know, help them understand what is available for them and what that would mean to ultimately be partnered with you. Sure. I would say for Halliburton Labs, it's just sort of a demonstration of us figuratively and literally raising our hand and saying, we want to participate. And so it's about being a part of the dialogue. And by doing that, you actually learn a lot. You're in discussions with maybe different constituents that you might not have had discussions with as a part of the run rate business. And so that's a really important aspect of what we're doing with Halliburton Labs is that it allows us to be a part of a dialogue that maybe is harder to have as Halliburton. And so I think it's a fantastic sort of entry point into that discussion. And it's something as well that come with sort of a recognition of giving before you get. There's this phrase that I like. It comes from Brad Feld and his kind of works that he he writes about in terms of startup communities and kind of what they did in the founding of Techstars and other things. But they, they talk about that a critical success factor of thriving startup communities is when companies or people who could take advantage of startups choose not to. And it's this idea of giving into this environment and giving into the ecosystem more broadly without sort of clear expectation for returns. It's not all altruistic. It's expecting to get something back. You just don't have a line of sight to exactly what that is. And so our starting point is to give and make that available, provide that. We do that at sort of, you know, a fair exchange of equity in the form of a modified safe. And we do that with sort of low friction and all of that with kind of the expectation that we're going to learn, we're going to be smarter about the future decisions that we make for the organization more broadly. And it's allowed us to sort of jump into it with both feet. If you don't mind, let's dive a little bit deeper into the exactly what the finance side of it looks like. I mean, I love the phrase, you know, give before you get. And I love that that's kind of the attitude here. And I think probably one of the important things to potential companies and VCs out there is kind of understanding exactly what you guys want. So you've got this, as my understanding, you get a small, y'all take a small minority investment, but then it's largely passive. And as you said earlier, we're not going to try to take your IP. We're not here to micromanage your business, but just dive a little bit deeper in exactly what it looks like kind of structurally. I mean, you know, what does that term sheet look like when somebody comes? Sure. 
it looks and feels much like other well-known accelerator programs that are out there. So if you look at like a Y Combinator or a Techstars or one of these, and so we're asking for 5% equity post money on the next significant institutional financial raise, and it's done on the terms of whoever's leading that round. And so it's effectively a safe. And so we've really tried to keep it simple. We recognize that that is dilutable over time. That's something that we may over time provide future investment to sort of maintain our percent. We might not, but we want that to be sort of very low friction so that when they're sort of having Halliburton labs on the cap table is not some big anchor or some issue. We want that to be the opposite. We want that to be something that people aspire to, that they put that on their resumes as a founder that they went through the Halliburton Labs experience and that that's interpreted by the investment community as that's actually something that I would be more interested in investing in because it's had the kinds of eyes on it that are going to look and think about it differently than maybe just coming out of any other program or whatever it might be. So I know y'all are in the application process now or it's initially right. kicked off for the 2021. When you guys are going through applications, is there anything in particular you're looking for as far as a type of tech or are you guys just completely open-minded as to if there's something that blows your hair back, you're like, all right, let's bring them on board. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I certainly, if something's going to blow our hair back, we're really, you know, got a lot of flexibility to sort of bring somebody in early on. We're going to bring three cohorts on a year. So we're actually going to do almost like a rolling application. We'll do formal application process three times a year. We'll bring on three to five companies. So kind of at any given time, we'll have something like 12 to 15 companies that are participating. And we really are looking for, it's almost easier to summarize. It's just whatever Halliburton is not working on today. So it's outside of the run rate business. And that meets the mission of advancing cleaner, affordable energy. So that can be energy generation. It can be distribution, storage, energy conservation, we're even looking at things in kind of the circular economy where you're taking waste streams and turning them into interesting raw materials, et cetera. So it's a pretty broad spectrum of the types of companies that we're, we're looking for. But again, they've got to be kind of early enough on in their journey that they haven't invested in, you know, a $10 million lab or there, there's some that we kind of find that are a little bit further along. We talk to and they say, man, where were you guys three years ago? But there's also some that are too early. It's kind of like, hey, we've got this cool concept, but hey, come back in 18 months. So it seems like this is an amazing opportunity for you personally and also within Halliburton. Can you tell us a little bit about how it's been received internal to the company? And then is, is it really an opportunity for a transition from a job, expansion of jobs and stuff like that in terms of career or even adding to it for Halliburton as a whole? I mean, the way that I would answer it, it's sort of like a dream job. The opportunity to sort of engage with startups to engage with the venture capital community, to think about clean energy and help do something that's significant for the planet. I'm the father of four kids, so I think a lot about sort of what the future of my kids is going to be like and spend some sleepless nights thinking about that. So the opportunity for impact, I think, is, is real. And I think that the formation of Halliburton Labs has that same impact on the broader Halliburton community. I think that, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about change leadership and and what that means and looks like inside of an established organization. And a big part of it is sort of the impetus for change. And if people don't understand or appreciate what the impetus for change is, then everybody gets caught up in the weight of incumbency. It's like, this is the way we've always done it. Like, I'm not going to mess with it. Why would I? I'm not incentivized to do anything different. And when you think about where oil field services is today more broadly, 
there's an expectation that something needs to change and that something is going to be different. And so Halliburton Labs is certainly a response to that in from the perspective of the employee base. And so I would say a roundabout way to get to your, your ultimate question is they're really excited and they want to get involved, get a lot of inbounds and questions of like, how can I help? This seems really cool. How do I get into Halliburton Labs? And so it really is sort of an important sort of jolt for the organization. And it's a critical part of Halliburton Labs' success. What we're offering startups is curated mentorship, learning from some of the best people in energy, and to have some of the best people in energy excited about being involved, I think becomes a really important part of bringing that crossroads to life. Yeah, I think I think engineers and problems are like the ultimate happy place, right? <laughs> That's right. So before we wrap up, Eric, any last questions you want to ask? I want to go back to, I think, one of the drivers for what you said earlier and just get your thoughts about this and maybe it's how it's driving decision-making inside Halliburton Labs. You know, and Sean, you and I have talked about this a bunch and, and you said it right. It's, it's not energy transition. Sean and I prefer the word evolution and energy evolution because this is going to take decades. And even decades from now, if we're at eight or nine billion people, the majority of those people will still use oil and gas for products and energy generation and everything else. So we talk about this long journey that we're on. But I loved you said something earlier. It's, it's, it was almost driven, driven by human value, appreciation for human life, trying to maximize human life. I think one of the things that's always interesting to me is when I look at Americans and I look at Europeans, I, I think there's a little bit of an entitlement, a little bit of being spoiled and we don't even realize the gift of what we have that we can walk in this room and flip a light switch on or that we can go down to a hospital and all the medical equipment will work and so for me when i think about esg issues especially in the e-bucket that's what i think about is trying to eliminate my entitlement attitude and worry about billions of other people on this planet that don't have the gifts that we have so i just want to get your thoughts on that kind of kind of at a altruistic level even though i know No, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's two to three billion people on the planet whose primary fuel source is animal dung and wood chips, for lack of a better biomass. And when you're talking about do you have access to energy or no access to energy or access to dirty energy or no energy, they're going to pick dirty energy, however you want to describe that every single time. If you're talking about I can study at night because I've got a light bulb that works or I don't have to burn animal dung in my hut and consequently I don't have uh, lung disease and issues that sort of come along with that. You've got a huge amount of the world's population that is trying to sort of get up and out of energy poverty and there's no doubt that fossil fuels of sorts, coal and hydrocarbons and other things are going to play an important part of driving improved quality of life. Now, as we do that, we have to be really mindful of there's ways to clean up those types of activities and being very clear about what those metrics are and how we solve for that all become really important challenges that not only the incumbent oil and gas sector need to be solving for, but a lot of other tech sector participants and other things that are going to have to come together and ultimately collaborate to solve those kinds of problems. But it's absolutely a driver. Excellent. Scott, thank you so much for your time. And if you ever want a side job doing a podcast, I'm pretty sure Mark will make room for you on our end. (laughs) Not that you don't have enough to do, but we really want to wish you the best of luck with what you're doing. This is a phenomenal case study. Thanks again for your time. And Eric, and behalf of everybody else, stay tuned for the next segment. We're really, really excited to bring you Paul Holland from Mach 49. He's going to give you a venture capitalist insight into this need and this story. And so again, thanks so much, buddy. Appreciate it.
Thanks, Thank you. Appreciate it. Hey, Sean, a quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Through HPE's extensive activity and experience in the oil and gas industry, they have identified six key areas to enable your company to get ahead of the competition. Cloud-based consumption, advanced analytics, secure mobility solutions, physical and cybersecurity offerings, asset virtualization, and application modernization. So with that, do you want to find out more about one or all of those solutions? Go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and to download their white paper about these subjects. Welcome to the Insight segment of the podcast. Eric, we just got done listening to Halliburton Labs' case study with Scott Gill. And also you and I had the chance as part of this recording to stick around for a while and actually go visit the physical facilities there on site in North Houston. Give us kind of an idea. What was one of your biggest takeaways from that time with him? You know, going and doing the facilities tour and not just talking to Scott and seeing his passion for obviously what he's doing, but to see the actual commitment from Halliburton, to actually walk into the lab and see the space that they've dedicated, the capital they've, you know, that they've made available through facilities to these startups, I think was the most amazing thing to really see, you know, it's not just words, we're really here to help you. And I think that was probably the greatest part of that afternoon. It was a really good experience. Yeah, I think for me, what really stood out too, is they actually bring them in, not just from a physical standpoint, but they give them access to the cafeteria. They actually bring all the employee sites. And then the one part about that, I thought was really the most interesting was the approved supplier list that Halliburton has from as a company. And this is a massive global company with all kinds of specialized suppliers, machine shops. I mean, really, really unique for somebody who spent time in that world. Those vendors and some of these people have these massively unique skill sets for them to not only be able to embrace them from a pricing standpoint, but also from a future standpoint, because that's going to stimulate them later. If they're part of that scalability part, as they go forward, that's going to bring more commerce and more stimulation around that. So it really kind of cuts down that, that timing of where do we find somebody that does this, especially as you're trying to go up. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. So as we try to do here on the podcast, you know, Eric and I could go back and forth about our time there, but we really think it's important to grab another voice from the from outside in the world in the industry, a subject matter expert, a thought leader. And as we mentioned, Paul Holland has agreed to come on. So before we introduce him specifically, I want to give you a little bit about his bio. So Paul leads Mach 49's corporate venture investing practice as the managing director in VC and residence. He has spent 18 years as well as the general partner at Foundation Capital, a top tier venture fund in Silicon Valley, routinely taking startup companies from zero to hundred million in as initial public offerings, typically called IPOs or acquisitions. And one of the first startup, the first startup he did, I believe was what he told us is Reed Hastings, but he also has done many other IPOs, including two as a member of the senior executive team with global sales and business development responsibility before he really got into the venture side. He's credited with helping generate $13 billion in market cap over his career. He received his MBA from the University of California at Berkeley. He has a master's in foreign affairs from the University of Virginia and a BS from James Madison University. He is a former president of the Western Association of Venture Capitalists, and he is the producer of a documentary called Something Ventured about the early days of Silicon Valley. He's also premiered his newest creative endeavor for the stage this year called Walls, and American Story in January of 2020. He has guest lectured on entrepreneurship at Stanford, Harvard, Dartmouth, MIT, University of Virginia, and James Madison University, as well as numerous appearances like this podcast as an industry expert and thought leader. And so with all of that, obviously, that's the reason we, I think we found the right person, Eric. Paul, thank you so much for coming on and, and be willing to talk to us about this case study. 
Thank you all for having me. It's a fun concept. So. So this is kind of a rudimentary way to start it, but the first question I wanted to ask is if you could give us a little bit of a, of a 101 for the listeners. We know we've heard word VC, venture capitalism, you hear PE, private equity, you hear some of these kind of terms, and I purposely, I would be lying, I, I could probably guess as to what those mean, but as far as like the nuance differences and what it should mean out in the public, I didn't do the Dr. Google thing and go find out. I kind of wanted to ask you as a, as kind of a, of a baseline. And then I wanted to ask you one other question for, to start with these two aspects. And that is, you know, we hear venture capitalists, I and mean, even if you don't know, you think you know, you have this perception that it's all people that come in with a lot of money, dump a lot of money, and then expect a lot of money out. It's just money in, money out. I've worked, you know, secondary, tertiary level in terms of PE groups and different like different groups like that and VC sides. And there's, there comes with a little bit of that baggage. And one of the things we try to do with the podcast is kind of break down some of those misperceptions. So in addition to kind of giving us a one-on-one on that, can you give us also a little bit of a breaking of the image of what the VC world is and what it is not? Yeah. So if I look at foundation as an example, we're all ex-entrepreneurs. You know, I was fortunate, as you mentioned, I got to do two startups. First one with Reed Hastings. Second one, I was asked by Andy Ratcliffe, who's the founder of Benchmark Capital, to go work for one of his companies, one of their new investments called Comic Communications with Mark Gainey. Those guys then went on to do a really cool company called Strava. Looks like a number of you users of Strava. So I got lucky. Both of my CEOs and founders went on to even bigger and better things after we got to do our stuff together. But venture capital is really a pretty simple concept. It's risk capital, typically very early stage. So at a foundation, we pride ourselves on actually originating companies. So we have sit down with the founder before there's the first line of code written, before they've got a lease, before they've got employees. And we just simply kind of jawbone with them and help use our experience as founders and now venture capitalists to be sort of their river guide and help them get new companies started. And then occasionally we get lucky and we stumble upon a Netflix for a Series B or a Chegg for a Series C, and we get to go along for the ride at those companies also. But very early stage risk capital, contrasting to private equity, typically much later stage, much, much larger checks. I mean, we'll write a $100,000 check to say a $10 million check in VC. In a private equity firm, they'll write a $100 million check to a $10 billion check. They'll take over whole industries. They'll take over public companies, take them private, get them all sorted out, make them more efficient, take them public again. Much more complicated type of thing. Venture is you know, typically hand-in-hand, early-stage investment, high-risk, high-reward. Eric, Paul, I want to dive in and talk a little bit about you know, kind of Scott's vision for Halliburton Labs. And I think I mentioned in the piece with him, the, the ability for some of these companies that, that you guys work with before they've written the first line of code, before they've signed the lease, to ultimately get that chance to stand on Halliburton's shoulders and really kind of accelerate their growth, accelerate their viability. Just want to get your thoughts. You know, it's a long journey on this energy evolution, but we need to start scaling quickly. We've got some of the, you know, you some of the largest EMP operators with, you know, some really ambitious goals. Just your thoughts on Halliburton Labs and their ability to really help somebody scale quickly and, and that kind of model and, and, and the value that it provides to kind of the VC world. Well, I'm very impressed with Halliburton. It's not a company that I've spent a lot of time with. I've been out in California now for 36 years, so, so certainly known about the company. We got introduced through Scott Gale, who you just heard from, just a terrific guy. He was out at what's called the Global Corporate Venture Capital Gathering. It's exactly what it sounds like. And he met us because we were giving a webinar there on how to do things like build incubators and accelerators and things like that. So got to know him a little bit. He made it clear that Jeff Miller, the CEO of Halliburton, was really quite serious about moving more aggressively into the innovation economy. And they're using this new sort of incubator accelerator as a modality, as a way for them to kind of get the wedge 
under the door, as it were, as a, as a way to be able to get started on this type of thing. He was, Jeff was very clear. He's not looking to do kind of a corporate venture thing. He really wanted to get entrepreneurs in the building, help them use the resources, as you guys talked about, of Halliburton and get them to the next stage and the next level. And in the course of doing that, help grow Halliburton's innovation capabilities, help grow Houston and, and the Texas market in, in the whole, and also help these young startups, you know, give them a place to go and, and some resources and an opportunity to, to flourish. You hit on something, you talked a little bit about Houston and Texas. And I think, you know, Houston's known as the energy capital of the world. And there's a strong push to become known as the energy transition capital of the world. And I think it's great to see somebody like Halliburton, true old school oil and gas, you know, what Scott would call incumbent tech or incumbent energy, actually, you know, with the backing of a CEO at Halliburton, like Jeff Miller saying, no, we are going to get behind this. It may never become mainline revenue for us, but we want to support it. And I think it's important to not only see the industry, but you're also seeing the city coming together and trying to embrace this. We mentioned a little bit in talking to Scott, this issue of kind of, is there cynicism? You know, can we actually bridge this gap? Can somebody, are there VC funds and are there startups companies that look at this from a reputational risk standpoint? Are we really comfortable partnering with somebody like Halliburton? Wanted to get your thoughts just kind of on, if you're seeing resistance in that area, whether it's reputational, you know, even customers or community issues like, hey, you can't really be working with Halliburton. What are you seeing in that space? Yeah, I think, you know, I've got a little perspective having done this for a while. So I'll bring the lens back a little bit first outside of Houston and just simply, you know, make a statement that happens to be true that 88% of the Fortune 500 has disappeared in the last 50 years. You know, it used to be that for the average tenure on the Fortune 500 was 75 years. Now it's 15 years. So over that time period, 88% are now the second name in a company or they're not even in the company at all. And I think, you know, if I can be blunt, I think uh, the Jeff Millers of the world kind of recognize that there's no inherent birthright to being one of the top companies in the world. You've got to continue to innovate. You've got to follow your market. And I think if you look at what's happened, you know, I ran the clean tech practice at Foundation Capital for a number of years, and we took a, an approach that was a, a little bit different. We focused not on the supply side, so we weren't really focused on kind of the new next solar panel. We focused on the demand side. So we started companies like Silver Spring Networks and the, the dominant smart meter company. We later then did move into supply, but we moved into new innovation models like solar power purchase agreements. So we were the original investor and at one point owned 35% of Sunrun, which is now the largest residential solar provider. So I think the bridge that a Halliburton's got across is that for the last 20 plus years, people have been very, very aggressive on the ESG front because they don't have that anchor, you know, kind of in the oil industry. That anchor used to be and still is an amazing, you know, kind of business. It's, a, it's an incredibly profitable business in a good day. But, you know, that sort of the, the notion is the writing's on the wall for the longer term. And so I would say, you know, we've spent time with folks at Shell, at BP, at Chevron and other places. Some of the most zealous people about the move to ESG are actually people coming out of oil companies or in oil companies because they recognize that there's kind of a sell-by date going on here on the trend line that we're on. And, you know, I think, you know, this is probably not that popular in Houston, but California just passed a big initiative around right no gasoline-powered cars, right? And, and that's just kind of how we roll out here. We, we, we throw the 30-yard pass when it comes to these kind of moves. And so, you know, I think we're going to see more and more of that stuff over time. And so for a company like Halliburton to ignore that, for me, if I were a shareholder, I would say that's irresponsible. I think they've got to actually kind of stick their necks out a little bit and start to take some risks and start to kind of enter the fray, as it were. And I think, you know, Jeff appointing Scott as the guy to do this, Scott's just, he's just a guy you want to win. And 
So I think he's going to go out and get some things done. And I suspect over time, there'll be other initiatives that will follow from here. But this is a good start. So Paul, one of the things we always hear for a long time, maybe it's the part of the Milton Friedman, not to, not to throw him under the bus, but it's like profit is it. Like the profit's the most important thing. Nothing else matters. You know, as a VC, as a venture capitalist, a lot of great ideas have come through your, you to spend hours talking about companies that came and just didn't make it for one reason or another because it just wasn't profitable. And so it seems like historically that's then kind of meant that the ESG issues have kind of gone, that's kind of a cost, it's part of the, it's cost, if it's cost prohibitive or it's a nice thing to do after, but the first thing we have to do is this. And it sure seems like, and it's, this isn't a new subject, right? The CSR and SRI, and it goes back and we've been humans for a long time and we cared about people, but it seems like this pandemic and even the last year, it seems like there's this massively intense focus like, oh my gosh, we got to get net zero. We got to get carbon neutral. We got to get carbon free. We got to we got to invest everything over here. And if you're not focusing on these ESG issues, you're out. And there seems to be a lot of people that are kind of feeling like they're stuck in this, twi- not a twilight zone, but kind of this in, this in between these two paradoxes of we've never really done this before. Eric and I have conversations with people in the industry on our end that are kind of like, what does this mean? How, where do we go? Can you give us a little bit of an idea of where you think the staying power of the ESG initiative, what is it getting right? And then maybe put some more to the areas that we need to be concerned about in terms of evaluating, especially investment dollars around ESG. Yeah, so I mean, you said a mouthful there. So I'll, I'll try to unpack that a little bit. I'll start with consumer demand, right? So, you know, Milton Freeman's also a big believer in consumer demand. And so, you know, there are a lot of people and you know, I'm just, you know, we're up here in Northern California and kind of stereotypical in that sense. But, you know, you go to our kid's school, the parking lot has a quarter of the cars or Teslas, right? So consumers have now, many consumers have decided, and a number of affluent consumers have decided that they were trying to move toward a more of an electric economy in terms of what they do on their personal lives. We have an unusual situation. I'm speaking to you from our, in Portola Valley, California. It's actually technically the highest lead point house in the country. So it's technically the greenest house in America. And what makes it that? So we have 120 solar panels. We create, you know, 27 kilowatts of power on the roof. And our house powers our car and powers the rest of the rest of the house from that perspective. So we're net positive from an energy perspective. That trend, while we're a bit of a freak show, that trend is being reproduced thousands of times. So I mentioned Sunrun. We invested in Sunrun back in 2008, just as the economy was going straight to hell. And, you know, we bought 35% of the company, I think for $7 million, something like that. Well, up until this week, had a little stumble this week, but up until this week, they were pushing toward $11 billion in, in, in market cap. So that's a company that, you know, if you're motivated by profit, it's pretty nice to have a, a 30,000% return, whatever the heck that was. And it's an indication of what we're seeing now in terms of consumer demand. I mean, I got three daughters. They're fortunately take after their mom. They're all over at Stanford and in college, but they all have a very strong ESG kind of like notion about how they think about things. So they want to help make you know the transition to a non-carbon-based economy. They want to make that happen faster. And again, to be blunt, whether it's oil industry or the broomstick industry or the buggy whip industry, it doesn't matter which one it is. If you go ask somebody my age who's who's embedded in those organizations and say, show me how you're going to innovate, that's often pretty hard to do, right? It's often really hard to do because you learn one thing over the years and it's you know, crank the maximum amount of fluid out of the ground, however you can do it. Well, the world's changed, right? There's a focus, even China's moving in this direction. And there's a focus now around ESG. And it's followed by, just read an article the other day, $4 trillion of investment is pushing this down the pipe. So, you know, I mean, you could make an argument, you know, one of my regrets about the Obama administration is I think they had an opportunity to really aggressively transition 
the U.S. to decentralize electric power, like to have solar power on every amenable roof that could be out there. You start getting that to happen, and you're going to see some things happen across the board around ESG. So if you're an oil company, that's the environment that you're coming into, right? That's that's where the kind of the world's going now. And so what do you do? Well, you you use all the really smart people you have, and you come up with points of view about how you're going to do your transition. You know, BP has been very public about, you know, they're going to be out of the carbon economy by 2050, 2060. I mean, you know, we'll see if they do that. But, you know, they took the risk of going in front of their shareholders to say that was what was going to happen. So I think we're going to see, you know, to the point of one of your early questions, I think we're going to see a hybrid approach. We're going to see people be as responsible as they can out of the existing carbon-based product line that they're selling. And then they know more about energy than almost anybody. So why not have them be some of the people that are originating some of the new technologies, the transitionary technologies that you said for Houston? And I think this accelerator that Halliburton's committing to could be part of all that solution. But, you know, it's a big story. There's a lot of work to do. There's a lot there. So much there. Eric, before we go, any, any last questions for Paul? I liked what you said earlier, Paul. You said, I think this came from Jeff Miller, right? Which is there's no birthright with respect to our business. We've got to continue to innovate. We've got to continue to see where consumer demand, to use that term broadly, is driving, you know, our industry and to paint that industry broadly too. Not in, not just oil and gas, but energy generally. How are we going to generate energy 50 years from now? And what's that going to look like? And what so therefore, what should Halliburton look like? And how can we encourage that? But I do want to get your thoughts. You know, we know Halliburton Labs is out there and doing this. There have been some other labs that have come to town. You know, wanted to get your thought as we think about energy evolution, energy transition concepts. I mean, how many more Halliburton Labs do we need? I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, how many... How many more people do we need to step up with that vision and say, no, we're here to help. We're not going to circle the wagons. We're here. We, we see the writing on the wall. We know where we need to go. How many, how many more players do we need like that to step up with those balance sheets, with the purchasing power and the vision? Yes, yeah, so that's a very insightful question, Eric. Here's how I'd have you think about it, right? The Silicon Valley, and this is a, a bit braggy, but it's, you know, it's, it's technically true. The Silicon Valley has created more you know, high-paying jobs, wealth new companies than any phenomena over the last say 50 years, right? Prior to that, it was probably Standard Oil and, and kind of the movement that went through that. And so how did that happen? Well, it happened in part because there were countless labs, right? There were like every country, every company was a lab. Every company was an incubator, effectively. Fairchild Semiconductor, if you look at my film, Something Venture, you know, Fairchild, you know, came out of Shocker Semiconductor. And then Fairchild then birthed dozens of, of companies, including the most important being Intel. And so when you look at that kind of thing and you think, okay, how many labs do you need? I turn it around and I say, how much innovation do you want? How much growth do you want in your economy? How many new companies do you want? How many young people do you want to stay in Houston in sort of a knowledge-based economy and start new businesses that then employ people and use people out of universities and things like that? And, you know, Silicon Valley's got its issues, but boy, can they generate a lot of jobs with small companies. And that sort of movement around the labs, incubators, and then, you know, what we do at Mach 49 is we help large companies innovate like a startup. So we've, by the end of this year, we will have incubated 40 new companies for some of the largest companies in the world, including companies like Shell and Stanley Black and & Decker and Schneider Electric and others. And there is, you know, inside these large companies are amazing entrepreneurs, super smart people, graduated top of their class. They don't happen to live in Sunnyvale. They happen to live in Northeastern. And they have an itch, like they see a problem. They want to go prosecute that problem. I think what Halliburton's doing real service for that community is they're creating an environment to allow them to go prosecute that opportunity. And if enough of that stuff happens, 
we've seen it over and over again around the world. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, how in the world did Shanghai develop and Mumbai develop and, and you know, what we're seeing in all these other different places. It happened because they got very, very focused and serious about getting all these little startups going and creating innovation in the economy. Yeah, that's why you said that word innovation. That's the one that keeps coming in my head. And it sounds like if, if you're to your point, if you're smart, and maybe that's a a loaded way to put it, but if you're forward thinking, if you're really concerned about what's going forward, that innovative, whether you're a hundred year old company or just starting out, uh, never stop innovating. So, so Paul, obviously so grateful for you to come on here. Thank you for your insight. And we're just really thankful to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. Thanks, Paul. Take care. On behalf of the Elevate podcast team, thank you so much for clicking play and bringing to life these amazing stories. We hope this elevated your perspective and serves you well as you navigate understanding ESG and the energy evolution. We are so grateful for your time and kindly ask that you rate and review the show on Apple iTunes, which is a great way to help us grow. The best way to support the work we are doing is to tell a friend about it, ask them to listen, and share with others what you've learned from listening to our guests. Lastly, we want to invite you to reach out to us for any comments, suggestions, or just to connect. You can do that through my email, sean.mccoy at oggn.com. I'd love to hear from you and what you think of our podcast. Be safe, and we look forward to bringing you another episode next week. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power, here to innovate. Ha!